Well, I'm with Bobby. I don't want chaos in my life either. Because the chaos is out there. And we can't control that. Because it's going to be out there. Uh, Because there's a fight that's going on. And a fight for your heart. A fight for your soul. And we can't control the chaos that's out there. But what we can have a say in what we can control, what we can respond to, is the chaos, whether or not the chaos that's out there gets in here. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how God wants us to maintain momentum in the fight. As we fight for Christ, fight for spiritual growth, fight in this road to recovery, how we've gone from uh, acknowledging that we are spiritually poor uh, that we've gone from, from spiritual poverty to mourning over that. And, and then from that mourning, uh, we are persevering and with the purity of heart as we demonstrate ourselves to be meek, which is, which is power under control. And then from our meekness, we want to focus with, with, with single-minded devotion to Christ. And then what that means is that we need to, we need to acknowledge our sinfulness and we need to make amends and 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 be peacemakers as and then from there we make a determination that we're going to we're going to keep the momentum on a daily basis and that is a fight and I want to talk about that this morning and so as we look into the word today I want you to be thinking first of all about the reality of spiritual fighting the reality of staying violent. We're going to see that phrase in one of our scriptures this morning. Then we're going to talk about the responsibility that Jesus has for every one of us as we are maintaining momentum and as we are avoiding relapse and as we are staying focused on fighting as spiritual soldiers. There's the reality there's our responsibility, and it's not for nothing. It's for a reward, a reward that Jesus says surpasses anything that we can possibly imagine here uh, on earth. All right, so that's where we're going today. We're looking at the reality, the responsibility, and the reward. And I like what J.R.R. Tolkien said. Tolkien gave us the Lord of the Rings. Uh, He said this, it does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. He wants to take you down. That's, that's part of what we believe about Christianity. And, um, and that leads us to this very first part of a message, the, the reality. God wants us to know and believe and get it, get it into our hearts that there is a spiritual fight going on in this world. Now, let me just stop right now in case uh, my, my concern is that maybe someone here... Uh, has just decided to turn, you know, turn the off switch on, and you know, you're thinking, wait a minute, you know, I come into this church, and I'm, I'm, you know, you know, Christianity, you know, I'm thinking that Christianity is going to be about Psalm 23, and and the Lord is my shepherd, and He leads me beside the still waters and green pastures, and you know, restores my soul, and yes, He does, and at the same time, brothers and sisters. 
Jesus tells us, promises us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10, 11, and 12, that we're in a war zone. We are. That's why he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of, he says, because of me. Not because of your prickly personality. Not because you're ornery. Not because you're just difficult to live with. All right, you should be persecuted if those things are true in your life. <laughs> you should. But you're not blessed for that. You're blessed if you're persecuted for Jesus' sake, because of me. He t- you know, because of righteousness parallels because of me. Jesus is our righteousness. And, and he says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for that, for great is your reward. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we're in a fight. And the fact of the matter is the fight for spiritual growth, the fight for maturity it is not smooth. The road to recovery is a, is a Ragged, jagged road. It's three steps forward, two steps backward. You have problems, and then you fall back into self-defeating patterns, and that's what we call relapse. So the fight with alcohol takes you back to drinking. The fight with overeating takes you back to putting on weight. The fight with gambling leads you to the lottery table. The, The workaholic fights the schedule again, and the fight with gossip or greed wears us down, and we repeat the past. The self-righteous prig relapses in pride and it's very easy to slip back into our old habits and old hurts and old hang-ups. Think about it. Think about it. When was the last time that you said no to something out of your allegiance for Christ and it was actually hard to say no? You know, some of us can say no to cocaine pretty easily. Because that's just not what we struggle with. Or we can say no to that second or third drink because we just don't struggle with that issue. But we, we just cannot pass up that juicy morsel of gossip or, or we just cannot let go of that grudge which gives us security. Or we enjoy nurturing that little basement secret that we go down in the basement all by ourselves when no one's looking and, and we kind of feed off of that. Or we... we we nurture that fantasy about this other person or we get a fix from that you know, extra purchase or we get a fix from greed or the accumulation of stuff, you see. We all struggle and any earthly desire that does not take no for an answer is a lust that surpasses your desire for Christ himself. And the fight, and that's a fight, and the fight to maintain momentum and the fight for self-control, the fight for self-control, the fight for the, for the fruit, the result of the Holy Spirit called self-control, the fight for self-control is not just about self-improvement. It's an essential work of God in my heart in a high-stakes spiritual conflict, a battle. And thus, as someone wrote, if you treasure sexual purity, your life is going to be an attack on people's love for free sex. If you embrace sobriety, your life will be a statement against substance abuse. 
If you pursue self-control, your life will be an indictment against gluttony. If you live simply, you will show how silly materialism and consumerism happen to be. If you walk humbly, you will expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose the foolish worldly mindedness of those around you. And the world will not take that lying down. Your Christ-like conduct will provoke a militant response from Satan. And that's why 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. So there's no such thing as dual citizenship when it comes to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. You're either in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. You are either salt or that which is salted. You are either light or that which is lit. There's you and there's them. There's no dual citizenship. There's not. Peter says, I urge you as aliens, as as strangers in the world, because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the Sermon on the Mount is our passport. That's the document that we live by, breathe by. This is what kingdom citizenship is all about. And Peter says, as aliens and strangers in the world, he says to abstain from sinful, uh, sinful desires, which war against, not just nag against your soul, they war against your soul. So there has been, there's been a preemptive strike from Satan upon us. And so these, this battlefield military imagery is not just some really nifty guy talk. <laughs> okay? Uh, it's because it's real. It's real. And it's a real war. And it's not conventional. And your enemy doesn't wear a uniform. Your enemy masquerades as an angel of light. It's covert. It's hard to detect the enemy. There are snipers lurking. And if you let your guard down for a moment, the village you thought was safe will suddenly, and without warning, open fire on you. So be alert. It's real. And that takes us this to the responsibility that God wants us to assume as soldiers of his kingdom. Uh, And I was encouraged by this verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, when Jesus said, uh, it's just a great reminder of of this warfare that we participate in as citizens of the kingdom. Jesus said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Forcefully advancing. You remember when Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 16, that on this rock, Peter confessed, Peter confessed, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you know, well said, this came not from your own heart, Peter, but from my father in heaven. And then he said, on this rock, what rock? The rock that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not, what? Prevail against it. So the image is that hell is this fortress, this Masada-like fortress, 
And God's kingdom is this invading army, building these ramparts, making the attack, and hell's gates will not prevail against this forcefully advancing kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about in the first part of uh, of Matthew 11, verse 12. And then that verse ends, he says, and forceful, the English Standard Version says, violent, violent men lay hold of it. What does that mean? It means that growth in Christ, living as heirs and citizens of the kingdom, and soldiers of the kingdom, citizen soldiers of the kingdom of heaven, to passionately pursue Christ means demanding of ourselves a violent, hostile hatred for sin. A violent hatred for that which keeps us from being more and more like Christ. Jesus says that there's to be a mean streak to the Holy Spirit's fruit of self-control. In other words, the merciful ones in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 are to show no mercy to those sinful desires. No mercy to the evil desires. and, And you must understand the evil that we fight is not at first the evil that's out there. It's not, you know. I want to get you all juiced up to go out these doors and then be ornery tomorrow, okay? <laughs> the evil we fight is not the evil that's out there. Uh, you know, we're not... Uh, the evil we fight is not the, the guy who tells the dirty jokes in the coffee room or the one who insults you or the boss who promotes someone else instead of you. The evil that we first fight is the evil that's inside of us. The evil which wages war on our own souls. Isn't that what we learned in James chapter 1 verse 14? Each one is tempted when by his own evil desires. Why are the temptations so attractive on the outside? Why is the chaos so attractive to us out there? It's because of the evil that exists in our hearts. And therefore, therefore, we need a good dose of WWJD. I'm talking about the other J. We need, we need some Jack Bauer intensity. <laughs> we do. At rooting out the evil that's inside of us and a fierce determination to see that God's kingdom is expanded. We need Jack to show up and take care of business at the evil in our own hearts because we're in a fight with our own desires. Here's what I mean. What what desires are you talking about? I'm talking about the kind of desires that you don't want anybody else to know you have, the fleshly desires that you kind of keep tucked down in the corner of your basement and every now and then when no one's looking, you just run downstairs and you just, you know. But you don't want anybody to know about it. Maybe it's a chemical. Maybe it's a drug. Is it just one more drink which will open the door to just one more? Is it a certain internet site? More pain medication than we need? More ice cream than we'd like people to know we ate? That sexual or anger fantasy? See? We need Jack to show up and do some business. See, that's why Paul says, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. And so no wonder Bobby spends daily time in prayer and in the word because every day is a fight 
Every day is a fight for your spiritual life. Every day is a fight for your family, your fight for your marriage, a fight for your sobriety, a fight to keep sin from dominating. And the good news is that God has not left us unarmed. He's given us weapons. And John Baker, in his book, Life's Healing Choices, talk about those weapons. And it's what Bobby's just shared with us on the video. Reserve the daily time with God for self-examination, Bible reading, and prayer in order to know God and his will for my life and to gain the power to follow his will. Let's talk about those weapons here for just a moment. First, talking about daily time for self-examination. Self-examination. This is what Paul talked about when he said to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He said to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your life, Timothy. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we're doing a daily self-examination. We're doing a heart examination. H, heart. Am I hurting? Where am I hurting? If you're hurting and you won't admit it and deal with it, it's going to mess up what you're doing. So you need Jack to show up. Tell me what I need to know. What's going on in your heart? The H. Am I exhausted? Am I tired? See, Am I physically exhausted? This is why I've said this before. I'll say it one more time. For some of you, the most spiritual thing you need to do when you leave these doors is to go home and take a nap. All right? Not now, later. <laughs> All right? Maybe you're emotionally exhausted. Maybe you've been around, what, very draining people all week. I'm talking about the kind of people that they're like cereal and they sit in the bowl and sop up the milk. Right? Oh, my. You know what I mean, don't you? Huh? Well, what needs to happen? Well, maybe, maybe you need to find your, maybe you just need to be alone. Okay? That's good. Or maybe you need to be with some, some very important people, very, very encouraging people, people who, who, will, who will fill you up and people that you can, you can you know, sh- iron sharpens iron. Am I exhausted? Am I hurting? H-E, am I exhausted? A, am I angry? Am I angry? Or am I feeling defensive about something? I was really encouraged by, by this quote from... Uh, an author and a pastor named Paul David Tripp. He says, when you are confronted, when someone confronts you with criticism, how active is your inner lawyer arguing in your defense? You know, we don't like to hear criticism. So immediately we throw up the shields and our inner lawyer tries to defend and rationalize and justify. Or, as Tripp says, can you listen to the criticism because you are convinced that Christ is your only defense? That you see, I, in, the, in the highest court in the universe, I've already been declared acquitted because I have, I've got a lawyer who is my advocate. And so because I've already been acquitted in the highest court, I can listen to the criticism, whether it's valid or not, you see. Uh, and and that, means, that means I grow to the point, and I'm working toward this church family, that I don't have, I don't have any buttons to push, Right? You know, people know your button, they push it to get that response out of you. And when I'm growing and maturing, then spiritual maturity, emotional maturity is I don't have any buttons to push. See, 
I'm not angry. I'm not defensive. That's A. Then R is, do I resent anybody? Do I resent? That Friday night, Celebrate Recovery, Gary Wackerlin talked about the two things that will take you down. One of them is secrets, and the other is resentment. And when I nurture secrets and when I nurture resentment, uh, that, will, that will cause me to falter and fail. And then T is, am I tense? Am I anxious? Am I fearful? And, and if I am, then, then that leads to this next weapon, and it's Bible reading. Oh, Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Take, be active in this. Be intentional. And what is more true or noble or right or pure or praiseworthy or admirable than the Word of God. And isn't that why Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. All day long. And what does that mean? That means I pick a Bible verse or I pick a couple of verses. And uh, for me, I just write it on my uh, on the back of my uh, business card. And mine's Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It's, it's Paul's word to Titus. And, and these verses are for Titus because he was a church planter in a hostile environment. And Paul's word to Titus, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you, meaning they will, will be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. In everything, Paul says. Now, (laughs) that's what Titus had and he was on the island of Crete. Okay? Always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That That was his church. And what did he have? Huh? He had the book of Titus. That's it. And he had the Holy Spirit. And he had the gospel. And, and he had the mandate. In everything, you set them example. You show the Cretans how they are to live. You demonstrate that. Listen, if people hear you talking about Christ, and they hear you sharing your faith, but they cannot imagine being like you, that's not good. So this, these verses, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a season of life where I'm needing to meditate and memorize and think through and apply Titus 2, 7, and 8. And to the extent that I commit myself to that, then, why, that's a well-fought fight. And the extent that I choose to forget that, uh, well, I'm just no fun. What about you? So you pick a Bible verse and you deliberate how that's going to apply to your life. You reserve time for self-examination. Uh, and and, it, and I, this is just two verses, okay? You say, I, I can't memorize about You know what? If you can memorize a country music song, you can, okay, you can memorize God's word. Just sing it, okay? All right? And then there's prayer. Prayer to know God, prayer to know God's will for my life, and to gain power to follow his will. It's no accident that at the conclusion of this spiritual warfare imagery in Ephesians chapter 6, 
where Paul talks about the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the belt of truth, uh, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel. It's no accident that the Apostle Paul, when he, at the very end of that catalog of Christian armor, that he says, this fully armored, this fully suited up Christian, as a community, approach the evil one, and what do they do with the fully suited armor? Before their enemy, locking eyeballs to eyeballs, at that moment, the Christian soldier falls to their knees in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. You understand what Paul is saying here? Someone said that prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie. It's not a bell to call the servants to satisfy some desire that we happen to feel. It's a battlefield transmitter staying in touch with the general. So, the field, so our general, whose name is Jesus, has called in the troops. He's given us a critical mission, that of making disciples. And then he's given each of us a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And the general says, comrades, I have a mission for you, and I want to see it accomplished. And to that end, I have authorized you personal access to me. You don't have to go through your sergeant or your lieutenant or up the chain of the command. It's the transmitter for me, the general, the commander-in-chief. And if you will stay true to the mission, if you will seek my kingdom first and my victory first, I will always be as close as that transmitter. And I will supply tactical advice when you get into those situations. And I'll even send in air cover when you need it. So a lot of our problems with prayer and a lot of our weakness in prayer stems from the fact that we're not, you know, we're not participating as if we are in active duty and yet we still try to use the transmitter. And we've taken this wartime walkie-talkie and we've tried to turn it into a consumeristic civilian intercom. We're called to pray, to know and to do the will of God. And isn't it interesting, as we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, that when you read Matthew chapter 6 and you find the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13, isn't it interesting that you see the Beatitudes covered in the Lord's Prayer? So we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? That means I'm not God, you're God. I am spiritually bankrupt. I'm poor. We pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning, God, I'm going to mourn that your will isn't done. And I'm going to be the meek believer, the, 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 the power under control believer to see that what you want done on earth and in my heart and in my life is what's done in heaven. And then, I'm, God, Give us this day our daily bread. I'm going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we pray, forgive me my trespasses, as I forgive those who trespass against me, meaning I'm going to be merciful, and I'm going to commit myself to being a peacemaker. And then, for today, we pray this prayer, the, the, the part of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I am staying violent in the fight against persecution. Maintaining momentum to avoid relapse. You see how that works? And so I have a question for us, church family. 
What do we need to do this week? What do we need to do over the next seven days to stay violent? What, what spiritual discipline over the next 24-hour periods? And as you notice, when you came in, you see writing on the uh, kind of the butcher paper that's hanging up on the wall there. And I'm going to invite you. You'll see some, you're going to see some commitments that your brothers and sisters in Christ in the first service have made, that they're, that they're saying, God, this is what I want to do to commit, to maintain momentum. And, and I hope that we all realize that, see, we're not in this fight alone. We are a life-changing community. We're a community passionately pursuing Christ. No, we're not just a life-changing individual. We don't do this by ourselves. We're not meant to do this by ourselves. We can't do this by ourselves. We need one another. We need to be together. And so what might that be in your life? What, what self-examination needs to take place right now? Is it prayer? Is it a commitment over the next seven days? I'm going to spend some time in prayer every day. Ten minutes, 15 minutes, half hour. A- am I going to find, am I gonna find a, a Titus 2, 7, and 8 verse? I'm going to find a verse, and I'm going to learn it, and I'm going to put a tune to it, and I'll put a country music tune to it. I'm just going to sing it. I'm going to feed on it and meditate on it. What is it? Maybe it's fasting for a meal. Or maybe it's fasting from a certain food. Maybe it's fasting from television so that I can spend more time in God's Word. Maybe it's I'm going to call someone every day this week. Maybe it's I'm going to make a commitment over the next seven days. I'm going to pray with my spouse. And we're going to say a prayer together and we're going to fight together. I'm going to invite you to do that here in just a moment. And uh, you figure out what that is. and You don't sign your name. Um, and, uh, and maybe you don't want to do this. Maybe but, but stand up and write. Okay, that's fine. Maybe you just want to do it in your seat. But you write that. And then we come to a time of communion. See, there's the reality of spiritual warfare, and there's the, um, there's the responsibility that we have. But all of this is not for nothing. See, it's, it's for a reward that is more delightful than anything else we can ever imagine. And Jesus calls us to fight with his weapons because of that reward. And that's what verse 12 is about in Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we fight, we stand in line behind our spiritual ancestors who fought before us. Have you ever wondered what happened to the apostles and the early church leaders after, you know, the writing in the New Testament? What happens? I'll tell you here, church history and tradition tells us what happens to the apostles Uh, The Apostle James, beheaded. The Apostle Philip, crucified. Matthew, who gave us the Gospel of Matthew, slain by the sword. Uh, James the Less, uh, stoned to death. Uh, The Apostle Matthias, he was stoned and then beheaded. The Apostle Andrew, crucified, left hanging on the cross for three days. The Apostle Peter, crucified upside down. The Apostle Paul, beheaded by Nero in Rome. The Apostle Jude, crucified. Bartholomew, beaten to death with clubs. Thomas, speared to death. Simon the Zealot, crucified. The Apostle John, exiled to Patmos, 
think he was later released only to die of natural causes, the only one. But all of them were persecuted. I mean, Jesus was right. John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And, and the world's gonna persecute us as well. But that's okay because we do not have to survive this world. You know that, don't you? And Jesus wants us to want the reward in heaven more than we can want any reward on earth. He wants us to, to, to lust after heaven more than lusting for the temporary things of this earth. He wants our treasure to be in heaven and not on earth. By now, about everybody in the country knows the names Armando Galarraga and Jim Joyce. Right? (laughs) By now, about everybody knows about how Galarraga was about to reach the pinnacle of pitching the perfect game. I mean, he was going to join the, you know, the pantheon of, of perfect pitchers. 26 up, 26 down. And the 27th batter hit a ground ball and was called safe at first base when the video replay clearly showed that the batter was clearly out. Right? Congressional hearings are being called to switch this. And of course, there's no coach's challenge in baseball, no video replay. So the error stood, right? And Galarraga's perfect game, this pinnacle, this mountain upon which he was one step from the peak, just the mountain just disappeared right from beneath him. There's a lot of lessons from that that we could go. There's a lot of ways preachers could go. See, we could talk about his sportsmanship and his poise in the wake of this grievous error. We could talk about, you know, repentance and the umpire's humility and remorse at admitting his mistake, which, you know, we could go there, but I'm not. Here's where I want to go. I want to talk about the mirage of the perfect game. The mirage. Because you see, what's your perfect game? What's your perfect game? Hmm? We all have one, you know. Writers may long to be on the New York Times bestseller list. Pastors may long to build a megachurch and make the national conference circuit. Those in business may long for the coveted C-level position. Bloggers may long for that one web-changing viral post. We violently, we stay violent at plying our trades, hoping for the big break, wanting to matter, believing that our lives will count for something more if our break does happen. And then you understand, you know, those perfect games are in, the, in and of themselves, they're neither good nor bad. It's, it's, it's the longing and the lusting after that that proves dangerous. The longing is a pathway to many snares that keep us from keeping God at the center of our lives. So then what happens when the transmission falls out of the car on the highway and our checking count is floating just north of zero? What happens when we don't get that promotion that we, that we desperately wanted and felt we deserved? 
What happens when our dreams for our lives do not actually come true? When we are one foot from the pinnacle, the peak of that perfect game, and all of a sudden the mountain just disappears. What happens? Do we shout at God in prayer? Do we? Do we spiritually pout, passively, aggressively just get mad, get mad at God? We ponder what could have been or what may be rather than living out the reality of the gospel in our lives. What's your version of a perfect game? What is it? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. And so church family, may we all lose our perfect games only to find that they were mirages in the first place. May we all look at the greatest success we can possibly imagine on earth and count it as loss, as rubbish. Paul says as dung. So that we may pursue Christ passionately. And may we lay our greatest hopes and dreams at the feet of the cross and gaze upon the face of the risen Christ. And may we say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Oh, church, if we will stay violent for that, if we will, if we will passionately pursue that, then in losing our perfect game, we'll gain our greatest treasure. Amen. Lord Jesus, uh, you never sugarcoat life on earth. You tell it the way it is. And uh, it's a battlefield. It's a war zone. Yes, there are moments of serenity. There are moments of uh, green pastures. But those green pastures take place within a war zone and there is an enemy and you have called us to the responsibility of staying violent against the evil of the enemy and the evil that's in our own hearts and I pray that we would fight with your weapons your word, your truth prayer watching our life and our doctrine closely and not doing it in, in the seclusive island-like ways of isolation, but in community. So that ultimately, having fought the good fight, the well-fought fight, we would receive the reward that satisfies like nothing else does. Thank you. God, please put in our hearts now as we prepare to receive communion. Please put in our hearts a discipline, a posture, a spiritual activity, an attitude, an exercise that you want us to practice this week. Not so that we get eternal life, but so that we may reveal we are citizens of eternal life, citizens of your kingdom. And whatever success we have, whatever victories we have on the battlefield, we promise, we 
take a covenant oath that we will give you the credit that is all of yours. May yours be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Jesus' name.